saying you've also given. Okay, let's commence our reading at verse 18 of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And it goes like this. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for a sign and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Chris Mueller stressed last Sunday the need for humility among God's people. That was his last message. Remember that one? I've been remembering it all week and have been endeavouring to put on the apron symbolically and serve. And the need for humility is needed because plainly of how prideful we are. That's what it's about. And... um, and matter of fact, pride is so inherent and inborn in each one of us that most of us are not even aware that we have a prideful problem. And how true it is that pride is a sin of the heart, right? It's a real, it's a sin of the heart. And why I say that is it's, it's not necessarily something that's tangible. It's not a tangible action in itself. But this inborn root sprouts forth in multiple varieties. In other words, the sin of pride is the root and it produces all kinds of fruit. And that's exactly what we have going down here at the Church of Corinth. Just to keep you in the context here. This is exactly what was going down. You know, we have, we have pride, a sin of the heart. As I said before, though it's, it's, it's unseen in itself, but we do see what springs, what grows out of their prideful hearts. This is what we see here. It's a little like the wind, you know. Can we see the wind? No, we can't see the wind. We can see the effects of the wind. And hence we say, oh wow, the wind was huge, or the wind was powerful. And it's a little bit like pride. And as we even um, thought about last week, pride is a sin that God hates and he's warned against it. He said in 16, chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not go unpunished. That's pretty strong words, right? And the Corinthian believers were guilty of prideful living, folks. Yes, even though they were called by God, to be saints, yet we know that just like us, they still lived in bodies of unredeemed flesh that were capable of living very unsaintly. 
Even though, just like us, they were eternally saved by by God's grace through faith, but now they needed to live and be led by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God that they received upon their salvation. But by choice, by choice, they chose, just like we do at times, to spurn God's grace and yield to prideful hearts which will always reap its consequences, I might say, and even worse, suffer the disciplining hand of God, like we will come into in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 30, where it says that some were sick among you and some even slept, meaning that God killed them. He did. God hates sin. And here in our text, we have this yielding to prideful hearts where they followed their favorite teacher. Remember that? At the expense of the message that me, these men preached. Remember, say, some I have a Paul, I have a Paulus, I have Cephas, and I have Christ. You see, the main thing was lost in their selfish, prideful behavior. They began ardently following their favorite teachers and in doing so they maligned the power and the wisdom of God in the message of the cross. That's what they did. And of course, this caused division and quarrels in the assembly at Corinth. You can imagine. So Paul in this section, what he does, he confronts their prideful behaviour by bringing them back to the main thing that we spoke of, the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ. He confronts them with the, with the wisdom and power of the cross and contrasts that with prideful human intellect and persuasive argument. You see, the Corinthians, by following their favorite leader, what they did was they demonstrated their belief in human wisdom and in rhetoric and in persuasive words. They believed and were looking to that as being the primary conduit to give and to receive God's blessing, whatever that may be. Nothing's changed, right? Churches, believers, Christians still struggle with us. So many fall into the trap, exactly what Corinthians are doing, maybe in a slightly different way and with a a different um, address on, but it's exactly the same. Recently, I could not help but respond to some young men who were Facebooking. And they were Facebooking all their friends about this wonderful and awesome happening that was going to come to Adelaide where this well-known apologist who is not here yet but is coming to Adelaide, he's going to come to defend the gospel. What an awesome thing to do, defend the gospel. And we, need to be, we need to stand up and defend the gospel. But to these young men, this man with all his intellect and all his persuasive argument and all his, his rhetoric, by the way, which he has, which he has, to them... This is what will prove and convince hearers of the need of a saviour. I warned them of the danger in my response of elevating human wisdom and rhetoric to such an extent that it downplays God's wisdom and power in the preached gospel by quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1-5. to And I'm going to read that to you. Just listen. We'll get to it in our exposition, but not today. 
And this is what Paul said. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were, were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. How clear is that? My dear people, Paul in our text hits on an issue that is vitally important for us to understand, but sad to say it's bypassed in many churches today. What we see here in this section corrects prideful hearts and gives vital instruction for the content and the methods of our ministry in the gospel. So how does Paul do this? How does he do it? First of all, he focuses on the preeminence of God's wisdom. We see this in verse 18, the preeminence of God's wisdom. What Paul does here is he draws attention to this problem at Corinthian church and um, where they, as I said, have allowed the main thing to be lost in the midst of their, their prideful partiality that we've spoken of. And he does this by setting up this contrast between how people view the word of the cross or the cross of Christ that's spoken of in verse 17. So we have the word of the cross in verse 18 and we have the cross of Christ in verse 17. Same thing, okay? In other words, it's not the preacher he is saying, it's, it's not the preacher you're elevating, Corinthians. That's the main thing. No, that's not the main thing. It's the message of the cross that releases God's power. This is what he was trying to get across. He reminds his readers in verse 18 that there are two kinds of people who both respond differently to the gospel message. And you need to listen carefully to this. He says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. See the continuing sense there. To those who are perishing and to us who are being saved it is the power of God. You see, the word of the cross, just to make this a little bit clearer, the word of the cross uh, is the entire plan of God's redemption for sinners through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Whether you go right back into the Old Testament, right into the New, it centers on the cross. The Old Testament point forward to this time in history when Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How? By offering himself, as we've remembered this morning, as a sacrifice for sinners so that we might believe, repent and turn to him. Trust in him and that work alone for salvation. That's the word of the cross. This first group of people are those who are perishing. You see, they see this plan, this message, this word of the cross as foolishness. It's the word moria, or it's where we get the word English word moronic from. Moron, moronic. In other words, this message of the cross to them is absolutely ridiculous. It's not logical. It's beyond human belief. It cannot be proved. Therefore, it is totally moronic. And the reason is because an unbeliever, an unregenerate person, it's synonymous there, an unregenerate person will and cannot look at the gospel, the message of the cross, through any other lens than his own depraved intellect. You understand that when 
we're born, we're all in sin and come short of God's glory as a result of Adam's sin. All mankind fell. We have that in Romans 5, right? And so we call this total depravity. And so what that means is that we are totally sinful. There's nothing we in ourselves can do that can move ourselves towards God. All these sort of things come in. And even our thinking and our understanding and our intellect is depraved. It cannot think its way, work its way toward God. This is the problem and this is why. So man's mind will only ever scream in and of itself foolishness moronic. The idea is crazy to suggest that the cross of Jesus Christ and all that it speaks of is the key to salvation and eternal life. The unregenerate mind will only ever scream that. You see, until a person is moved and regenerated by the Spirit of God, the cross of Jesus and its message will at best at best, only ever be a sad and an unjust moment in human history, at best. Those who are perishing, those who are in the process of eternal judgment, because all of us who are not saved, Romans again tells us, Romans chapter 1 and 2, tells us that we are under the wrath of God. It's not as if, okay, you're all cool now, you're in a state of limbo, and then later on you're going to experience the wrath of God. No, 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 that will happen. But even now an unregenerate person is under the wrath of God because they are outside of Christ. So this is the horrible horribleness of total depravity. Man in, in and of himself cannot, in his own strength or ability, move toward God and please him. He cannot. Hence, looking through the only lens he or she has, that's human understanding, that's an understanding devoid of God's regenerating spirit, the message of the cross, the gospel, is foolishness, it's moronic. That's why Paul says later on in chapter 2, verse 14, this is what it says, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. The natural man, that's a man who is unregenerate. That's a man who is not saved. That's a man who is outside of Christ, an unbeliever. The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him and he is not able to understand it because they are what? Spiritually discerned. This is why when praying for the unsaved folks, this is to put a practical spin on this, when praying for the unsaved, we need to pray that the Spirit of God might intervene, might invade and convict those whom we're praying for with the word of the cross. Rather than look to some clever apologist or some slick communicator, which God can use, by the way, and praise God for those who have that ability in rhetoric and being able to succinctly state the gospel. Praise God that there are men and women who can do that. Okay? And he can, God can use those people if he so wishes. Just the same, I might say, just the same as he can use your or my faulting words and not very clear, we might think, to understand in human reasoning. He can use us. And when God does use that, when that happens, when God does convict, when he does pierce into the very heart the message of the cross, you know what that happens? That sinner responds to the call of God in repentance and faith towards Jesus Christ. That's what happens. The journey of those who are being saved has begun. Okay, that's where it begins. 
Salvation is a cure then for eternity, absolutely. And one day, this is where this is the whole journey, and one day, because we're all on the journey, those who are saved, one day that journey will be complete when our very bodies are redeemed and are renewed and are glorified. Steve's hanging out for that, as he said this morning. When the roll is called up yonder. And here's the question, folks. Which group are you in? Which group are you in? The first group or the second group? You're either being saved or in a group of being destroyed. And when I say being saved, don't get the idea that, okay, salvation here is a process. Salvation is a moment in time when you submit to the word of the cross and accept Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord, the only way of salvation. But we're being saved. We're being transformed, okay? We're being changed. And then one day we're going to be glorified. See, that's a process. We call that sanctification, but that's another story. So you're in the first group or the second group? In that group that's being destroyed. Right now, under the wrath of God, a dangerous, horrible position to be in. Or as Scripture says and reminds us, still on the broad road that leads to destruction. Under the wrath of God. If you are still in that second group, my prayer is that the Spirit of God will invade your proud heart this morning and cause you to put your faith and trust in Him and the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because why? The word of the cross is the power of God. Not the preacher. Not the priest. Not the minister. But the word of the cross is the power that God uses to save people. Secondly, we come to the permanency of God's wisdom. We see this in verses 19 to 20. The permanency of God's wisdom. As I've gotten older, I've learned to value things of permanence more than probably I ever used to or ever have done. Things of permanence and durability, you know, um, and some of it still clings on to me. You know, even yesterday we went and bought a new vacuum cleaner and I, I, I leant toward the more durable one, but... This nagging thought, well, a durable one crashes just like a cheaper one does. But anyway, I've learned to value things of, of durability and permanency. You know, when I was young, I, I couldn't wait until I was a teenager. Oh, a teenager was the in all, in all. You know, you couldn't wait to be a teenager. And that sort of went pretty quick. And then I couldn't wait until I got married. Okay? You've got a couple here who can't wait until they get married and so they're going to get married. That's good. And, um, and then the children came along, whole five of them, and all the ups and downs of, uh, of the five and, uh, and health, etc. That, that came and went. And before I knew it, my three score years and ten are just around the corner. Life as we live it, folks, it's so fleeting, isn't it? It's so fleeting. You young people here, probably that's quite natural for you not even to think about that, but it is. When you get to sort of our age, you look back, oh wow, where's it all gone? It's so fleeting. It's here today and gone tomorrow kind of deal. And many of you know that. As I was thinking about this, I am so glad, I am so, so glad that my joy, my hope, my stability, my durability in life is not on life itself and all that it offers but on the 
absolute permanency, the immovability and the durability of the wisdom of God. Amen? Amen. This quote from the Old Testament that we see here in verses 19 and 20 is from Isaiah's time. It's from Isaiah's time. And just reminds us that God never changes, right? And just to fill you in on the context here, um, what was happening was Israel was in a bit of a bind. The Assyrian army was camped outside its doors and were about to annihilate them. And God promised Israel that he would bring about a great defeat, a great victory for them without any of their plans, without any of their schemes, without any of their military input against the Assyrian army that was camped out there and looking very provocative. Read about this in Isaiah chapter 29, by the way, if you want to look it up. And God said, I will conceal and hide all your wisdom. This is what he told Israel. I will conceal and hide all your wisdom and I alone in my wisdom will defeat this army. And that evening with one angel alone, he slew 185,000 men. All Israel had to do was trust and obey. Paul's point in using this quote here, folks, is to say that when it comes to God's blessing and his redemptive purposes in people's lives, in your life, in my life, often, far too often, man's wisdom, man's schemes, man's thinking gets in the way and hinders God's help rather, uh, hinders God's work rather than helps it. When people come up with all their own ideas and their philosophy about religion, apart from the authority of Scripture, that's man's wisdom blocking out the wisdom of God. They look at God's wisdom in the word of the cross and they reject it. They reject it because it it does not fit with their way of thinking. And you will get responses, well, it's too confronting, it's too much in your face, it's too, it, it, it needs to be watered down. The sin word is, no, 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 we don't need to mention that. The blood of our Lord Jesus, oh, no, no, that's that's too harsh. It's too in your face. Salvation by faith alone and Jesus Christ alone, that is too exclusive. It's too simple, others would say. And a very inward these days, it's completely intolerant toward other faiths. These are some of the willful and deliberate responses of unbelievers who Paul speaks of, by the way, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 23. Pretending to be wise, what happened? They become fools. Their human wisdom and cleverness rejects God's revelation and they cling to their own transient and fleeting earthly wisdom and understanding. That's what they do. But not only is human wisdom unreliable, Paul continues to point out the folly of human wisdom and that it it cannot even over a period of time prove its worth. It cannot. And he says this by asking one question divided up into three. The question that he asks is where, basically. And he divides this one question up into three parts and he says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? 
Where is the debater of this age? We see in verse 20. In other words, what he's asking here in contemporary language is, where are all the clever guys who can solve the problems of the world? How closer has human wisdom and all its intellect, with all its governments, how closer is it to halting war and bringing peace and eradicating hunger, stemming the tide of crime and immorality and violence? How closer is it? Where is the wisdom of this world and how has it benefited you? How differently, he asks, better off is the overall world situation than it was 50 or 100 or whatever amount of years ago? Good questions, right? You see, folks, we have more in our day. I love technology, by the way. Josh is trying to talk me into getting a smartphone. I haven't quite moved there yet, but one day, God willing. I love technology. But we have more technology, we have more books, we have more education, we have so many different degrees and diplomas around that you could, more than you could poke a stick at. We have more scientific research, we have more psychology, we have more types of communication. You name it, it's out there. Like we've never had it before. But you know what? Poverty, war, disease, immorality, oppression and violence and broken homes and disastrous marriages have increased. Right? Human wisdom has not even made a dent in this flood tide of human evil which is destroying the world. It hasn't even made a dent. It's going backwards. Paul asks a simple question. Where has it gotten you? Where has it gotten you? Paul wanted the people to see that the wisdom of the world fails in providing solution to the real big and eternal questions of life. You see, human wisdom, by the way, it may point... Pinpoint the problems of our world. We hear that all the time. Oh, this is the issue. This is the problem. We've got to deal with this issue. It may point, pinpoint the problems of the world, but it never, ever, never, ever sees the deep-seated sin problem and never can provide solutions for dealing with that sin problem. We have lots of problems in Adelaide with all these things. Violence and crime and and uh, street kids and lack of housing and goodness knows what else. Underneath all that, underneath all that, what is the main problem? Sin. You see, only God's wisdom in the gospel gives the never-changing, eternal, lasting answer and solution to such matters. It's only that. You see, Solomon himself, he discovered the emptiness of human wisdom. He wrote this in Ecclesiastes. And uh, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, I thought to myself, says Solomon, Look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than any one who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is chasing after the wind. You see, the Corinthians were hankering after worldly wisdom by elevating certain teachers above the wisdom of God and the gospel, the message of the cross. My dear people, may we ever keep the cross of Christ central in our personal lives and the lives of this church. May we ever do that. 
programs, excellent teachers, great communicators, creative ideas. Yes, they are all necessary and good in themselves. And the Lord can use them and he does use them as he so wishes. But, here's the but, but these things must never, ever be allowed to take the preeminence and be the driving force behind our mission in the gospel. They are mere tools that help keep the main thing the main thing. Thirdly, the power of the cross or the power of God's wisdom. We see this in verses 21 and 25. As I said before, my wife and I brought up five children. And um, as I was thinking about this, there was times when, I don't know if the Thalmay did this, but I don't know, maybe I was a little bit harsher, and, um, but I often did this. I let them make mistakes in order for them to learn. The Thalmay's nodding ahead. She was sort of in on me at that there too. It's actually quite a good way, actually. It's only a fool who doesn't learn by mistakes, right? Only a fool. And we all make mistakes. So really, mistakes can be a good thing. We can learn by them. But anyway, when bringing up children, it usually happens when they insist on accomplishing some task or some project or whatever they want to do. I can particularly remember our kids, and uh, James might not have been involved here in this one, but certainly Carl and Brad were uh, building this tree hut and this old massive big fig tree, and they were going to build this out. They were going to do all sorts of marvellous things. And then they had a little bit of a look at the material that they were starting to begin with. And I said, hmm. And I walked away. I walked away. But they were all keen and they were going to do what they had to do and, uh, yep, Dad, we're up for it. And so off they went and you stand back and wait and watch without sort of doing anything purposely. I have watched them struggle. I have watched them get frustrated and make a hash of it. Absolutely. And sometimes in exasperation see them throw it all in and change their plans or walk away from it. But you have to let them do that until they get to the point where they realise they haven't got the wherewithal or the know-how or the ability before they come and ask you for help. Right? You have to get, let them get that. And that's what Paul is kind of telling us here in verse 21. He says... For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to those who believe. You see, God the the Father in his own wisdom, he wants us to learn that in our own strength, in our own limited intellectual wherewithal, we, because of our depraved humanity, we cannot solve and deal with the greatest problem that undergirds all our problem, which is sin. We cannot. And you know, folks, the sad part about it, there's millions around the world and even churches who would say, yes, you can do this by yourself. By what you do. You pay penance or you do this or you give money to the church or you be a good person. That will earn you God's favour. That's just like trying to build a tree hut with ridiculous material. It'll never get you there. You see, human wisdom at its highest form, it can never break through on this undergirding sin problem. Human wisdom may well recognise the problems, but it does not have the power to change them. 
to deal with the source, which is sinful hearts. Only God has the power to deal with the root of sin, folks. The very nature of sin that we're all born with, every single one of us, that undergirds all the sin in our lives. And do you know what that power is? Of course you do. That power is is the gospel. God has chosen in his wisdom, even though it looks foolishness to mankind in general, the simplicity and the power of the gospel he has chosen to use that to be the tool, to be the source, the only source, to change and transform a person from within so that they become a brand new person and a child of God. That's it. Not in religious ceremonies, not in communion, not even in baptism, not by slick TV evangelists or psychology or logic or by any priest giving you a blessing. No, no, no. The power is in the despised, ignored and ridiculed and seemingly foolish preaching of the word of the cross in the gospel. It seems too simplistic, doesn't it? But this is God's wisdom intervening where ours fails completely. God is pleased through the foolishness of the message priest to save those who believe. And like the Jews and the Greeks who Paul speaks of in verse 22 and 23, their minds here by unbelief, it refuses to accept this message. It refuses to accept this message. Their own wisdom screams at them, prove what you see, say is true. Give us some supernatural evidence that this word of the cross message is for real. That's what it screams to them. You see, their hard-hearted belief was like a wall that blocked out the wisdom and the power of God from being effective in their lives. The Greeks or the Gentiles, you've got the whole world sort of um, here with the Jews and the religious people and the Greeks and the Gentiles, everyone that are not Jews, they were not necessarily wanting supernatural signs. You see, these are the clever guys. These are the philosophers and the logicians and, uh, of the world. They weren't wanting supernatural signs so much, but their blockage to God's power was that they wanted scientific evidence. Sound familiar? Give our minds enough evidence so that we can logically work through this. These two groups are mentioned here, folks. They're representative of us all. All unbelieving mankind. They place their own wisdom and learning above that of the wisdom of God and the message of the cross. And hence, what do they do? They reject the gospel. That's all they can do. Paul believed in the supernatural. Not as if he didn't believe in it. No, he believed in the supernatural. Well, God used him often to bring about supernatural happenings. Remember that time? Snake jumped out of the fire and bit his hand. He should have dropped dead within minutes. No, no, no. He didn't. He carried on. He believed in the supernatural. He had seen miraculous things done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And he was an intellect too, by the way. He didn't despise intellectuals. He was an intellect himself. He actually studied under the top professor of his day, Gamaliel, one-on-one. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Might we say he had his doctorate in Judaism. But besides all that, when Paul became a believer, what did he what did he preach? What was his message? What was his defense of the gospel? 
What did he serve? How did he serve God faithfully? What did he proclaim? What was the main thing in Paul's ministry? What did he pursue right to the day he died? And we believe as a, as a martyr. Here it is, verse 23. We preach Christ crucified. You see that? Even knowing that the Jews would not accept and refuse to believe that the Messiah was Jesus, whom they crucified, was a stumbling block to them, even knowing the Gentile summary of the cross of Christ would be foolishness and nonsensical to them, knowing all that, Paul kept the main thing the main thing. He would not be moved and he would not dumb down the message. He would not change the message to accommodate different cultural groups. He preached Christ and him crucified. When all said and done, it comes down to simply this, folks. It's either about man's wisdom or submission to God's, God's wisdom, right? Even though to the world the word of the cross is foolishness, remember this, remember this. But to those who are called, are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What an awesome message we have. My dear people, the only message the Christian has, the only message you have to tell is the message of the cross. though seemingly foolish to the world. It is God's chosen way to bring about sinners to salvation. That's why no person will ever come to the Lord or be accepted by God just because they say, oh wow, what a wonderful creation we have. God made it, full stop. It may be a step in the right direction, but it's only the first step as we have in Romans 1. May we be a church, may we be individuals who value and cling and proclaim the wisdom of God in the gospel of his son, Jesus Christ. I want to read out the words of an old, old hymn, like I sometimes do, in closing. O love divine, what hast thou done? The Son of God, his blood hath shed, the Father's co-eternal Son had all our sins upon him laid. The Son of God for us hath died. Our Lord, our life was crucified. Was crucified for us in shame to bring us rebels back to God. And now we glory in his name and know we're cleansed by his blood. Pardon and life flowed from his side when he, our Lord, was crucified. Then let us glory in the cross. Make it our boast, our constant theme. All things for Christ account but loss. And now for him despise the shame. Let naught with him our hearts divide, since he for us was crucified. Shall we pray? Our gracious God, we thank you for the cross of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. It indeed is an emblem of suffering and shame, but Lord, even though despised in general by the world, we glory in it because we know it is through the cross of our Lord Jesus that we have been given access and salvation and redemption and peace and joy and are called your children. Oh, Father, we thank you that it is by faith that the Lord Jesus bore our sin, our personal sins, 
on the cross for us that we go free. We thank you that we are saved by your grace through faith in the cross of our Saviour and all that that cross speaks of. Help us to hang on to this. Help us to proclaim it. Father, we, we confess that it's so easy to play around the edges, as it were, teach some moral teaching or some goodness of human life. But Lord, it is so difficult and we find it so hard to get down to the nitty-gritty and tell people of the cross of Jesus Christ. Help us this week in our conversation in our, with our families and with our work colleagues and, and with whoever you bring across our path to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and that alone. Father, we give thanks. I ask your blessing upon us and all the people of God said, Amen.